0: This is Brian Gitt. This is Ed Lattimore.
1: This is Danielle Smith. This is Kristen Nagel.
0: This is Aaron Gunn. This is Vance Crowe. This is Quick Dick McDick, and you are listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Thursday. Yeah, I I tell you what, I say this every Thursday, and here it comes again. Um, When I started in 2023, I did not think I'd be rattling off five a week. And I did not think I'd be into, what is this, like the the third week of, of February, second week of February, whatever the heck it is. It's just like, Sean, what are you doing? I don't know. Sean's having a lot of fun. How about you folks? Anyways, I tell you what, I'm having fun on this side. And, uh, well, that brings me to my next thing that, uh, you know, I'm always going to stress about a live show, but I'm excited for this one. March 18th is the next SNP presents. It's going to be legacy media. Of course, uh, whether you call it corporate, you call it mainstream, it doesn't much matter. We're going to be uh, sitting down in Edmonton. Yeah, you heard that right. Edmonton. Um, and, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna bring in a group, uh, to talk about some different things, from censorship to uh, you know uh, what we're seeing, maybe some some solutions from the future. Should be an interesting night. Uh, here's some names you you probably remember from the podcast. Kid Carson, uh, he was on episode 303. Of course, he was a long-time uh, radio host out in Vancouver, uh, and he's other places here in Canada as well. He got removed for for expressing any thoughts about the Freedom Convoy. I'm sure a lot of us remember that uh, that moment. Wayne Peters, he was episode 325. Uh, Wayne did What's Up Canada, and uh, I, where I remember Wayne from is when I initially started searching out people to interview on the COVID front. Wayne had already been there, and I found out later that uh, they drew straws to go on his show. So I thought that was super cool. He's got a an interesting background. He's uh, coming in from Winnipeg. So you got kid from Vancouver. You got Wayne coming in from Winnipeg. You got uh, go back to episode 150. I talk about this one a lot. That's Byron Christopher. So if you haven't gone that far back, go back and listen to Byron. Uh, What are they? Independent journalist, uh, 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 (laughs) Armageddon-like, blood and gets crime reporting, I believe, is how they describe him on his Wikipedia page. He's uh, in Edmonton and uh, got to sit with him, going to be sitting with him hopefully here again before the show. Looking forward to that. Uh, And then Chris Sims, she was just on episode 386. Of course, uh, all of you raving about her. We added her in last minute, and she's going to be a part of the next SMP Presents. So, tickets are in the show notes. So, you just click on that Show Pass. We switched it up from TicketLeap this time uh, to an Alberta company um, based out of Calgary, actually. So, Show Pass. There's a link there. You can get tickets. Uh, it's a little different than uh, the previous ones, the, the table sizes are a little bit smaller. Um, Only eight eight to a table. Uh, There was one one ten had already sold. So the table of ten, she gone, uh, which is super cool. And then tables of six, too, if that helps. Otherwise, you just do what we've always done, and you can buy individually and and, kind of sit with a group of people who are all there, hopefully for similar reasons. So that is March 18th. Let me tell you. I'm excited uh, uh, for that group to come together and see what happens like uh, I think uh, anytime you get uh, smart people in a room it'll be interesting to just see how they kind of riff off each other you know uh, if, if they're all musicians you, you get the point um, business businesses if, if you're looking for opportunities to team up with the show uh, Monday Wednesday Fridays and who knows maybe Thursdays I got nobody sitting here I like to talk a lot of, uh, a lot about the podcast but Monday Wednesday Fridays for sure we got some open spots um, the Tuesday match up. we're running out of spots december just went so now i think it's november july i think that might be it actually folks like uh if you're interested in that there's some open spots as well and then finally for individuals you know i've been um I've been deliberating this for a long time. I, I, I talked about it last week. I talk about it again. I just keep talking about it. Um, and, and so um, one of the things that Vance Crowe and another listener put me on, and I keep forgetting your name. He's from Sylvan Lake. So please text me because I've somewhere misplaced it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Is Fountain. So it's an app where you get, uh, I get paid in Bitcoin or uh, Satoshi's, I should say. I'm going to be doing a podcast with Vance about this in March to kind of give me a better idea of exactly what's going on. And then, of course, uh, all of you, because uh, certainly there's a bunch of people that are interested in helping support the podcast. And, you know, honestly, I love all the support. I love all of you fine folks listening in, tuning in, everything else um and this fountain thing is is interesting uh because it basically um, pays me for you listening to me you know i i don't quite understand it all just yet but fountain you can look into that download it off the app store search out the podcast uh and and you'll you'll get a feel for it and then of course uh, the next one is substack uh i don't know i i don't know my thoughts on this you know like i, I was saying about patreon you know i got a patreon account but the problem with patreon is it's you know <laughs> Eventually, uh, you know, it's it's not going to like what I'm doing. Whenever that time comes, and so uh, somebody had mentioned Substack uh, because obviously they're allowing a lot of people to uh, critically think and and uh, to uh, share their thoughts. The the thing I have to do then is write, and I, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm not um, I've never been a writer. I joke about it all the time. And saying all that, uh, Jordan Peterson, you know, uh, talks about it. You know, you need to be able to think. You need to be able to write. You need to be able to speak. And uh, so the thought has crossed my mind on on whether that's a good avenue. Certainly from a, a long-term standpoint, uh, it it, uh, it probably would be worthwhile. It, I just got to be careful. I don't overextend myself into too many things because I, I one of the lessons I learned early on was, you know, whatever you're going to do, do it well. And uh, if you're going to have everything, that's great. But if you don't do it well, then I mean, you know, like (laughs) it's just there and it it isn't doing a whole lot for you. So when it comes to changing things up, I have a Patreon account and I've never felt great about it because honestly, I don't want to interact with it that much. You all know my thoughts on social media. And so Substack, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm, uh, Heading off on holidays next week. No worries, we got content the entire week. It's going to be a fun week. We got great guests coming in. Um, but the substack thing, I'm going to think about on my week and and just maybe do a little more research and see if that's something. Love to hear from all you guys, like and, and gals, like you. You're the. Do you want to even read a couple of my ponderings? Like, is that something? You know, hit me up text line. You get it. Um, yeah, that be all being said, let's get on to the tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. She created Warrior Women, a drum duo with her daughter. She's also an Indigenous storyteller and drummer at Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. I'm talking about Matricia Bauer, so buckle up, here we go.
1: This is Iskawa Chitawachi, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matricia Bauer. So first off, uh, ma'am, thanks for hopping on with me.
1: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I was saying to you via you know email uh, that uh, um, the way I've been, I don't know the way this show has been going. I just kind of follow uh, what the audience is uh, is telling me. And uh, your name came up uh, a couple times, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. All right, let's follow it and see where it leads. And so uh, I appreciate you uh, getting back to me and being willing to coming on uh, come on. Uh, I'm always interested to hear about different uh, parts of our our beautiful province and and everything else and I I don't know how I stumble my way into certain conversations but here I am anyways so um, for the people who don't know any of who've never heard of Matricia maybe let's just start with a little bit of background we'll see where we go
1: yeah so I um moved to Jasper about ten years ago, and I work primarily within the tourism industry before that I was working in the education industry and uh, I still do that as well but um we get uh two million visitors to Jasper twenty million visitors actually um a year and so uh that provides a a big you know um energy for what happens here in this particular area and we're right here in the mountains I'm an indigenous herbalist um I'm a drummer i'm a singer. And uh, I'm going to be going to New York to do some work here with Destination Canada. So I get lots of opportunities to travel internationally as well with my work. But uh, my traditional name is Nitsigatsun, So it's she who moves mountains is uh, in my Nihiawak, my Cree language.
0: Can we, did you say, uh, Jasper gets 20 million people through it during the, the holiday or through it, the tourism season?
1: Yeah, so we can get like 20,000 people in a weekend. So we just had like six, we sold 600 tickets a night in the middle of like uh, October here. So
0: how big is Jasper? How many people? uh, I I actually don't know off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, so there's only 5,000 people who live in Jasper and we have like over 70 restaurants.
0: Think about that. That is wild, isn't it?
1: It's so wild because I came from a town that was about 10,000 people. And I think we had three restaurants.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you, when you, when you talk about, uh, you know, like an energy coming through, uh, 20 million, like that's, we're not talking, I I don't even know what, like folks, I don't even know how to put that in to, you know, 20 million people over the course of 365 days. That's a lot of people every single day. And obviously there's going to be high times and everything else. Um, but man, when you think about that, that is that's an insane amount of foot traffic.
1: It is. We uh, we really balloon up in the season. It's totally a different vibe. But even in the winter, we've actually turned into a 365 day uh, destination. So we just finished a really busy um, internet. Uh, Alberta Beer Festival was here at the Fairmont, but then it was also the long weekend. So we had a lot of families that were at Ski Hill. There was other conferences and events. So now even in the shoulder season, we have conference and uh, event seasons. Uh, October sees dark skies. Uh, September sees our um, music festival. So there's always something rolling on. We just had Jasper in January. So there's There's always something that's happening here in Jasper now. And because it's a destination and also a winter destination with a ski hill, um, it's an attractive uh, place to visit at any time. And I think that um, the slower times are really great for uh, people like from surrounding areas in Edmonton. I ran into just so many people who are um, here for the weekend uh, from Edmonton.
0: Yeah. I, I was, I was curious, actually, does it get tired? You know, like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, I'm underestimating how many people roll through Lloyd in, in, a, in a given year. I know it can't be, I know it's a lot, but they're more passing through than uh, stopping and, and taking in what the, the town has or the city has to offer. Does it become tired? Like after a busy season, are you wore out?
1: Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we have a high time and we have a low time. Most of us don't take any holidays over the summer. So we're, we're working from um, especially uh, June, July, August and September. Those are months that we're um, our feet are on the ground. And that's when we're doing the majority of our work. A lot of people will take like the entire month of November off. Um, we have a lot of snowbirds that are gone for January and February. So those times are often a lot like slower um, and we're able to do other things. But yeah, our season is a little different than, um, I mean, I think it would probably be the same as any other destination resort. If you're talking Canmore, Banff, um, these kind of places where we get lots of visitors in a very short period of time coming through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Like, I work on contracts, so I can take as many contracts as I want or as few contracts as I want if I take too many contracts. And, of course, I have to hire staff, which can be a little hard to find in the summer. But um, you can manage, you know, how busy you want to be. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, that it, it's extremely busy uh, in the summer.
0: Is this, uh, Matricia, is this something you um... – Like you've always been a part of, or is this something just, I I actually don't know, like how long have you been in Jasper, um, with, you know, in the background of tourism and, and, and certainly, uh, I, I believe, and you can tell me as much as you, as you like, uh, as far as, uh, trying to essentially impart some of the culture that uh, because I'm very interested in hearing about the the drumming and and different things like that, because I know about zero. Um, But have you always been in this or is this something that's not relatively new? But I don't know.
1: So I've always been promoting my culture for like the last 20 years, but I moved to Jasper about 10 years ago. Um, But I had been in the Jasper area several years before that working. Um, but I didn't know if I would be able to make the leap to actually make Jasper a full-time uh, place to stay. I had spent almost, I think, 48 times at the Tonquin one year and then 52 times at the Lobstick in a summer. So we were driving back and forth from another small town in this area and uh, performing in Jasper, staying overnight and driving back. And that was starting to get um, more taxing than uh, trying to find a residence here. So 10 years ago, I made the leap to uh, come to Jasper and see if I could uh, do my Indigenous business full-time and uh And that was a great leap of faith and Jasper is just this kind of community that opened their arms um I've never felt so embraced by a community. The first three years were hard, like I think anytime you have a move, you know you're missing your old community and you're establishing you know new roots. but Jasper you know is in the mountains it's a beautiful place to live, and the people that live here um are the type of people that uh, want to work in tourism, so they're very friendly they're very open. Um, it can be difficult to make relationships in Jasper because a lot of people are very transient that come in, you know, we get a lot of seasonal workers. And so you fall in love, and then boom, they're gone. And so uh, the first year, I lost an entire circle of friends. And so then I started looking for people that were like, um, had been in Jasper for a while. So now my circle is uh, with people that um, make Jasper permanently their home. But I still have a chance to uh, welcome some of those transient workers every once in a while into our circle. So it's, lovely uh to get that breath of fresh air as well
0: that's a that's an interesting thought you know most most places where you set up roots don't have the issue of uh um certainly people come and go uh, (laughs) but when you talk about losing an entire circle of friends you had to adjust how you because like uh i assume uh you seem like you're a pretty social person so i assume that uh you know People that come to Jasper are of a same mentality, essentially. You mentioned tourism and, and enjoying that industry. Uh, but that'd be a real shock to have them all leave at the end of the year and be like, well, crap, Like I just lost like eight good friends or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. to actually have to approach it differently.
1: Yeah, well, it, that was a, that was a learning curve for sure, and I still welcome some of those people into my circle. But yeah, that first year, um, you know, we were all new, so I was gravitating to other people that were new, and uh, it didn't occur to me that they would all leave at the end of the season. But uh, we get lots of Australians, we get a lot of um, Canadians. Oh, alike. like
0: uh, people. Uh, sorry, I, I feel like I'm sorry, folks. This morning is going to be a learning curve for Sean. Um, people from Australia come and work in Jasper.
1: Yeah, we actually, the, the, mostly Australians, we get a lot of people, uh, Czechoslovakians, a lot of Filipinos, but the Filipinos tend to uh, stay here. We have the largest Filipino community in like all of Canada. Um, we had In a huge, Jasper? Yeah, in Jasper. So we had a huge citizen ceremony, but you have to remember with 70 restaurants and, uh, you know, over 40 hotels, um, you know, 3000 campsites, you know, and an average Canadian will come and work in Jasper and they will be a manager or but you know that like we have um, hotel rooms to clean we have garbages to that need to be emptied, we have campsites that need to be clean. And maybe back in the day, um, a Canadian would come and spend the summer here doing that. But to be honest with you, um, we really rely on uh, that group of uh, workers to come in and get the basic work done.
0: Isn't that oh, like wild? Like, I've never, you know, as a, as a guy who's grown up, I grew up on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border, right? So just into Saskatchewan, now live just into Alberta. And have been through Jasper, I don't know, a handful of times in my life. You know, like it, it's, uh, it seems like uh, it's, a, well, it is a very popular destination for, for Albertans and Canadians, uh, but certainly Banff and, and a few different spots right along that, you know, uh, you, you kind of pick your destination and people get the point. I, but I've never really actually taking a step back to think about how many restaurants, how many hotels in a 5,000 town per, like that, that almost hurts my brain a little bit. And then to realize it's um, people from out of country who are making it run probably Mm -hmm. makes even less sense.
1: Yeah. So Jasper Park Lodge, for instance, usually has around 200 uh, staff and they hire an additional 400 or they used to. Um, and uh, and that is mostly, you know, students that are coming from abroad or coming domestically and they're working these um, jobs to get experience and uh, meet other uh, people from around the world who are actually working and who are visiting. And uh, then, yeah, then they go back home, uh, you know, at college time, which uh, w- which is actually a perfect time for Jasper, because that four month season is really when we need people.
0: How odd was it then? I, I assume this had to be in the strangest, whatever uh, duration it was for Jasper. Cause I, I, I remember hearing stories about Ban- Banff as well. When COVID lockdowns, all that stuff was going on. Tourism just went in the toilet. Like, were you just kind of like, well, this is, this is kind of odd. Like it must've been a bit of a ghost city or did Jasper not feel that?
1: no we actually felt it a lot not we're actually pretty remote like we're four hours from the closest city and we're five hours from Calgary um, through a a highway that's often closed due to uh, um, snow conditions and avalanches so we we we're actually pretty um, isolated and when COVID hit Two things happened. Um, one, a lot of the immigrants uh, they have are, are applying for a permanent residence or they couldn't um, they had to extend or delay their stay or they had to go home right away because of COVID. Um, so that was really unusual. There's lots of people that you know w- um, ended up staying or ended up leaving right away. And then um, the other thing that happened is that our town completely stopped, so we are very dependent on tourism. It runs pretty much every aspect of Jasper. So when there was no people, when there was no tourism, we were one of the hardest hit uh, sectors. There is no doubt about it. Um, a lot of people did rely on COVID, and a lot of people relied on we, you know, started um, a lot of the local restaurants um, offered curbside service, and as you know, members of the town, we we tried to support that as well. Um, But then a joyous thing happened about a week in is we realized we had Jasper all to ourselves, which I would say never happens. And so we were able to go that that was the greatest year of skiing in my life. And the ski hill was you know um open the entire time, and we are all and like everybody here in Jasper out, uh loves the outdoors, so there was cross country skiing, there was downhill skiing, there's skating, and we had the entire mountain to ourselves. I remember going to Valley of the five and there wasn't another soul that was there, and usually that entire parking lot is full all the time so there was this moment where we got to experience our own backyard to ourselves. But then after a couple of weeks of that, when we were totally shut down, it almost, I almost started feeling a bit guilty. And uh, when they, when we, and we also got a lot of local traffic when they opened it back up again, you know, it wasn't like, You were supposed to be kind of out and about, but there were people that were still coming from Edmonton. So most of the um, services that we have here, the hotels were considered essential services. So surprisingly, all of the hotels stayed open. So um, people were still coming to visit. And uh, we did have a little micro economy, but all all of it was local. It was all Canadians. Hmm.
0: Um yeah that's uh, I was you know when you talk about being the hardest hit my my next thought but I th- I think you've kind of uh, maybe uh, answered it I was you know so many people uh businesses and and uh if they weren't deemed essential uh that would have been a really really dark time but you know you mentioned uh, everybody loving the outdoors and and certainly where we are we you know we we got big open country to go, uh, you know, find different things. Not me, not saying that made everything easy, but at the same time, it did offer some things that if you're sitting downtown Edmonton, you certainly wouldn't have, uh, you having the mountains right there, uh, certainly is, is an opportunity that, uh, a lot of us don't have. Uh, but the businesses then did find a way to skirt through, uh, if I can use that term, I don't know, uh, find a way to, to, you know, navigate rough waters, um, by kind of, you know, being allowed to stay open and and then obviously the little community being remote. It's not like you're going anywhere else. You get to support what's there.
1: Yeah. We, we really did struggle. We're still struggling as a community. Actually. It's one of the things that um, we are, we still have a real employment issue. We have 700 open jobs right now. Um,
0: 700.
1: Yeah. Uh, which it, a lot of um, there's a lot of signs in a lot of places saying, you know, um, one of my favorite coffee shops, it says, you know, we're really running on a skeleton staff. But if you're rude to any of our, our people will feed you to the bears. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's kind of a cheeky little, you know, uh, statement, but uh, every part of that is true, is that we are running on uh, skeleton staff, and we are experiencing, you know, high volumes of people still coming through because everybody's desperate. To travel again, but uh, we weren't we're not able to relaunch as quickly as a lot of other um, areas simply because like what I said was a lot of the um, immigrants had to go home. And we haven't been able to necessarily get them back. And when they did finally open the immigration, um, they opened it up for a year. Well, that doesn't work for Jasper. So they opened it up in October, which means that you would have had to hire an immigrant from November to November. And we actually just need them for the summer season, mostly. And uh, so then you would have had to pay them and everybody was, you know, we had just gone through two years where we weren't really making an yep. income. A lot of people borrowed heavily. Um, some people closed up uh, altogether. Uh, so the people that did stay were sort of working on a shoestring budget. And uh, so a lot of people chose to just sort of work on their own, or you know, take local uh, people for help. So everybody tried to you know help out. I, I saw a lot of retirees um, go back to work for their friends for a summer. You know, just to kind of make things uh, move along a little bit, but. Yeah, I I think we're still um, working on the relaunch and I think it'll be a couple of years before the tourism industry really gets to the point where they were before. We're going to be seeing the numbers coming back this year, but we're still on recovery and a lot of people are paying back loans that they took out during that time. So I think that the smaller businesses like myself were able to pivot a little um, easier. I started doing a lot of online classes. That was really... Um, gratifying. I couldn't believe that people you know wanted to pay for a moccasin or a mitt making class online. Um, my daughter and I did a lot of online zoom drumming. Um, for just to lift people's spirits we always had a um, a Saturday morning show and uh, and we actually still get together once a week and uh, zoom by drum drum by zoom I guess <laughs> and uh, even though you know it uh, is a little uh, different um, we're all in different parts of the province now so it's still nice to be able to get together with my drum sisters and connect in that way and that's one thing that COVID allowed us to do is normalize this sort of um online platform. And I find that uh, in a remote community like Jasper, where there's not always um, a lot of other Indigenous people, it still allows me to connect with my community in that particular way. So I enjoy that aspect of it. So learned a few things during the COVID.
0: You know, uh, one of the, I can't remember, um, when I was doing my my deep dive, I, one of the things I, I stumbled on was, uh, I feel like it was an interview um, but I'm I don't know why the brain doesn't want to work this morning uh, regardless I wrote down the power of drumming you said people don't understand the power of drumming or maybe you didn't understand the power of drumming right at the start I know Jack squat about drumming and I'm curious I, like uh, sitting on this side I um, Obviously when I when I hear the power of drumming and the and all this different th- I'm like, hmm, that seems like really interesting. The fact that you uh did it through uh COVID uh, on shows with your daughter and trying to uplift people's spirits and that type of thing. I'm just like, I'm really interested, but I don't know the right question to even ask. So maybe I'll just ask what is it about drumming and and maybe you can give me a little bit of a story around it and and try and frame it so I can understand.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started drumming um when I turned about I think I made my first drum when I was about 35 and my I made my big drum when I was 40. And I'm 55 now, so I've been drumming for almost 20 years. But uh, I think I kind of went into it um, not really knowing exactly what was happening. There wasn't a huge uh, um, community where I was from that uh, did uh, tr- any kind of drumming or even traditional drumming. So I had to start reaching out to other women that uh, were drumming. And um, it was really um, an exponential uh, way of learning my culture. I had to learn other women's drum songs, so I had to reach out to other women drummers. And so there's this beautiful community. And every time I reached out to another indigenous drummer, they were so um, gracious. You know, I had people who mailed me CDs that they had recorded and and provide me with drum songs. And then I found other drummers to drum with. And um, and then it started. People. That's actually how I started working in Jasper. Um, the indigenous liaison at the time had gave me a call and said, I heard that you and your daughter drum in your community, we would love to have you come out to Jasper on Indigenous Day. And then they just kept hiring us and hiring us. And then we did a performance for Dark Skies. And then Uwe Walter from Jasper Park Lodge saw me. And then he asked if I would um, sing for the Australian Pacific Tour Group when they had a fam tour. And they loved me. And then they ended up hiring me for their shows. And that's when I started traveling back and forth. But drumming for me, the reason why it's so powerful is because it is the heartbeat of Mother Earth. And so it, um, you know, when you're drumming, you're not thinking about what you did yesterday and you're not thinking about what you did uh, or what you have to do tomorrow. You're really just in the moment. And I think that lots of times we live in um, other spaces than in the moment. And that beautiful um, time to live right in that moment and realize what is happening is good. Um, is a a beautiful feeling. And it also, the heartbeat reminds us that we all have our own heartbeat and that we're more alike than we are different. So every human being has a heartbeat and even um, the earth has a heartbeat. And as an Indigenous drummer, um, I learned the protocol sort of as I went along and I learned the lessons as I went along. Um, and I was really grateful for the graciousness of my other friends and my other drum sisters, and uh, also a lot of the elders that guided me in my early infancy as a drummer. Um, I was met with a lot of um, patience and a lot of grace, and I try to carry those forward as well. And sort of to show how full circle this came, I got a phone call about six months ago from a young Métis woman, and she said, Um, I'm just starting my journey on reclaiming my heritage and she said and I heard you're a drummer and I would love to get together and do some drumming and learn some songs and I said yes I I would love to do that for you and and with you and as I hung up the phone I realized that was the same phone call I made like about 20 years ago um, to some of the drum sisters that uh, that have helped me along my journey and um I just realized that uh, I have this beautiful chance to you know, give back to my community in that way. And uh, I found that drumming gave me a lot of um, lessons that I probably wouldn't have learned uh, any other way. And it's been quite a joyous way of expressing my culture.
0: I'm, I'm jotting notes as we go here. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, wh- I'm going to rewind this uh, to when you first um, were going into the path of of drumming. Why was it important to learn other women's songs?
1: Well, my uncle told me that I couldn't just sing whatever I wanted to, that I had to learn the other songs of the, uh, like understand what the other songs meant. And so he taught me a couple of songs, but then he said, oh, you can't sing those songs because those are men's songs. And so in Indigenous culture, we do have community songs that everybody can sing. But uh, then we also have women's songs, and then we also have men's songs. And men's songs um, are usually meant for community and our powwow. And women's songs are usually meant for education and home and connecting to the creator and empowerment. And so they have sort of different roles in how they're presented to the communities. Um, uh, just like everything else has evolved so has uh indigenous drumming uh not only is it done in um in language but it's also done in English language sometimes you'll hear both cree and english sometimes it'll be all english sometimes we'll take a a totally english song and indigenize it so there's a a lot of play and a lot of like a marrying of contemporary um styles and i think that is sort of the way that evolution, the same way that the Indigenous culture has, you know, uh, evolved and and uh, embraced, you know, both cultures. Uh, it's called two-eye seeing. And uh, we need to be able to see in an Indigenous way, but we also need to be, be able to see in a contemporary way. And uh, only with being, having our eyes open in both areas, are we able to move forward. So I think that drumming allowed me to dive really deep into my culture in a way that, maybe I wasn't prepared for, but um, it just seemed to be a timely, it was important for me to connect to my culture. Um, I was raising children, so I wanted to know what to tell them about my culture. I wanted to de- dive a little deeper into my language, which opened up a whole new um, world for me in uh, how I relate to um, to my language. And um, I think in just sort of like decolonizing myself, um drumming just seemed to be a real natural way of doing that and uh and it has just remained a permanent very important part of my life
0: as you went deeper into drumming and you learned uh different women's songs because the men's song and the women's song so then you start singing more women's songs do you eventually get to a point where you have your own song then and you teach that to other women as well
1: Yes. So we we my daughter and I have written two albums and we recorded our last one in New York City. Actually, funnily enough, um, before COVID. So about a month before COVID. So we had planned to do an album release a year later, and we've never released that album. And then funnily enough, during COVID, we had nothing to do. So we actually submitted our um songs to um, you know, lots of different, yes, you know, different kind of avenues. And we won a we won an award. Um uh, for the one song that we had recorded. So we have an award winning album that we've never <laughs> that we've never produced, which seems super backwards, but COVID has been a, a strange thing. And then because my daughter then permanently moved um, to another city, we haven't had the time um, to get together and uh, kind of work down that route. But yeah, it was a natural evolution for us to start to write our own songs. And because we were in the education field, it was motivating to hear other indigenous people sing their songs, and uh, so um, it it was actually a leap of faith to start writing our own songs. So that was uh, that was really an interesting process as well.
0: Um, I, I believe in, in in reading up about you. Actually, I don't need to believe. I know that as a young um, uh, kid, you were adopted at five, and then yeah. and you, you you talked about. Um, i I hope i'm getting this right decolonization of of yourself and trying to find your roots uh basically your heritage yes something along that lines Um, that's right i'm curious about the time from going from being adopted to uh wherever it is in your trajectory if it's in your early 20s or um just stumbling back into trying to find out uh, i assume you're you know. i'm assuming you're like an investigative journalist you know like you you kind of mm-hmm. like oh man that makes sense oh i and then and then you gravitate towards it um mm-hmm. because as uh as where i sit i mean i've had similar things with uh culture and heritage and different things just from my where i've grown up and yeah. trying to uh uncover some things and be like oh right. that hmm, that's interesting that makes sense of why uh where i come from and, and everything else uh, could you give me some insight into that because i think that's um your perspective on it is uh well i'm curious about it
1: yeah so uh when i was adopted it's um part of what was called the uh, 60 scoop and uh i was involved in like uh um because it was i was actually adopted from an indigenous family and put with a with a a white family. Um, and it was very clear. you know, I remember being adopted. I have all my adoption records. It was an open adoption. I knew of my family. So I was never away from my culture, but I definitely was removed. And, uh, my parents were really good in keeping me sort of involved so that itch was always there. Um, but, uh, you know, Calgary wasn't necessarily like we went to the stampede and I got to see a lot of Blackfoot culture, but I wasn't really immersed in Indigenous culture at all. And um, I always felt like it was a piece that was missing, especially in my youth and as I got to be older and uh and I found that that was a part of me that was never really resolved. And so it really, um, you know, I had met my natural sister when I was 18. I had started beating in my 20s. By the time I was married and having children, um, I think the urgency to really dive into my culture hit at that point, simply because I wanted to raise my children um, in uh, in their culture. So by reclaiming my culture during that time, I actually immersed my children in it. So they have been fairly indigenized as they were growing up because they watched me with my journey. And I think um, that allowed them a choice, you know. And also, um, I wasn't sure kind of where to start or, or, or kind of how to delve back into that indigenous side of myself um, because I had been removed, but, uh, I do have all of my family is still, uh, most of my family is still around. And I was really lucky to have my uncle Joe live in uh, our small town for a while. And so we had, um, an interesting, um, connection where we didn't really know we were related at first. And then I realized that he was my mother's brother and, uh, that was kind of wild. And, uh, and then our relationship, um, became a little closer and then he started, um, uh, and then they ended up moving away, so what kind of lost lost that um but uh, I also have a a relationship with my brother on the reservation, and then I was adopted with my other brother. so there's you know these different connections that uh, it's kind of a wild story actually when you think about it but um well uh,
0: if you don't mind uh, i you mentioned the 60s scoop and I can read off that 11,000 children were taken from communities between 1960 and the 1980s. But I actually don't know. I guess I just don't know, you know, like I keep finding these different parts of Canadian history that I just don't know. And so I don't know what the 60s scoop was. Uh, and I'd be curious if if you could just kind of lay it out to me because I, once again, I I don't know.
1: Yeah, so the Sixties Scoop was sort of an organized way for social services to decolonize or to, yeah, to decolonize uh, Indigenous children. So, uh, like, a lot of my um, parents' generation were residential school survivors. So, you know, those kids were removed from their homes and put into boarding schools. And so... They were, you know, horrifically abused in lots of different ways, but they didn't get a lot of parenting skills. And so a lot of them, when they came out of the boarding schools and got married and had children, didn't have the capacity to parent properly. And instead of the government helping them, what they did was they just decided to to remove as many kids as they want. So any kind of problem that happened within the community um, or within the family, the children were removed and the children were removed and then put into other um care so some kids were even adopted to other countries like england there's uh, i know of an indigenous uh, man that was adopted down to australia um so uh yeah they they weren't just adopted in canada but they were adopted all over the world uh, some down in my one uh, uh, i've heard that one of my brothers was even adopted down into the states with a closed adoption so really don't know a lot of information about that but um, what that means is that you know families are then deconstructed and removed and put into cultures that aren't their own. So the onus of uh, of learning about my culture was then placed upon myself because it had been taken away from me to be grown up in a in an area that I may or may not have been um, immersed. And there's a lot of debate on whether, I mean, obviously I was put into a home that was loving and was financially, um, very giving. So I had a lot of privilege, uh, that I, um, am grateful for. Um, but, you know, for every gain, you know, you suffer a loss and, and it was my culture. And because our, our, all of the kids were removed from the home, um, you know, my mom died by suicide. And she had died after we were all removed. And so, you know, that obviously wasn't helpful. Like that wasn't helpful for our family situation. You know, we were all um, taken away and, and, uh, and we weren't able to be kept together. I'm really lucky that my brother and I were were able to be adopted together. But even that has come at a cost. And so I, you know, um, I persevere with my culture because um, because it was taken away from me. And and so I create space and I take up space and I and I um take back my culture as a way of defying the government uh with what they did. And even though I got financial compensation from the 60s scoop, that didn't bring back my family. It didn't give me back my connections, it didn't indigenize me or decolonize me. It just Financially compensated me for that, and uh, I don't know if you can actually be financially compensated for those kind of things. You know, it didn't bring my mother back. Um, it didn't put my family together. So there was definitely a shattering that happened and a reckoning. Um, so every time I wear my beaded earrings, every time I pick up my drumstick, every time I, you know, share my culture or speak my language, it's uh, it's resistance, you know.
0: Yeah, I, um, you've got my brain spinning on this side because I'm, I'm hearing, you know, like, um, I certainly, I know all, well, I don't know all about the residential schools, but I've, I've certainly had different people talk about it and the generational. I didn't know what generational trauma was, was, you know, to even begin to understand that until we talked about it. I was like, oh, hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And then uh, listeners haven't heard this. I, I got to interview a 91 year old lady um, and her descendants were British home children. And I'd never heard that before. And uh, that's, that's a hundred thousand kids from age two to 15 that moved from Britain because their parents were killed in mines and the link like just a whole bunch of, and you're like, man, we've put a lot of like, uh, and I, I say, we, I more mean the, the, structure that be has put a lot of, uh, undue hardship on a lot of people. And then that goes down the line. And this is just another one that is just like, it's really hard to understand, you know, uh, where I sit at least. Um, uh, the, the, well, I
1: think, I mean, obviously learning that kind of information changes your, you know, paradigm because yes. it, uh, alters your perception of what history is like. And, uh, and then it also, I mean, challenges, you know, our perceptions. I like, yeah, I grew up in Calgary too, you know, I grew up seeing homeless people that were primarily Indigenous. And I remember thinking like, what is wrong with those people? Why don't they, you know, get their act together? And then sort of the more that I learned about even my own history and um, allowing myself grace with, you know, my mother's story, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, she was able to raise us as much as she did um, because of, what she would have had to sort of overcome at the time. And, uh, and I mean, part of it, you know, when I, when I talk about intergenerational trauma um, and look at my sort of own behaviors that I kind of suffered through, like I dealt with depression, I dealt with alcoholism, I dealt with, um, you know, anxiety, all of these things, you know, I wonder, like, why, why did I deal with those? I was raised in a really good home. But I mean, I suffered, you know, trauma from all of these other types of uh, information and experiences. And um, I, I'll share a story with you. So uh, um, a scientist told me this story about mice. And uh, these mice, uh, actually, I think they were rats. So the rats were exposed to um, a light and a shock. And this happened over and over again. And then they took the shock away and they just exposed the rats to to the light. But the rats still reacted to the light like they were being hurt, even though they weren't being hurt. It was just the light at this time. Eventually the rat got pregnant and it taught their babies to be scared of the light. Now, none of these babies have ever been hurt. So they're just being taught how to be scared of the light. It took seven generations before the rats stopped reacting to the light. That is what intergenerational trauma is. You you don't have to be hurt by trauma to still experience the trauma. So your DNA actually changes in your body when your parent is exposed to trauma. And so you carry that trauma as you're born. And so without even knowing it, you know, I carry this intergenerational trauma um, oh and i do know it uh, and so i'm allowed to give myself grace i'm allowed to like you know have a counselor i'm um, use you know therapy um take uh medicine that makes me feel better and um, i'm allowed to like have days that i don't feel great or uh, not as productive because i suffered from trauma and so um, when i meet other indigenous people that are also suffering from trauma which i would almost assume would be most of us, um, I like to, to kind of use myself as an example of being a cycle breaker and definitely, um, having raised my kids in a very different way, but understanding even that about myself, I would have to say is a a lesson that um, most indigenous people and, and most people could learn from.
0: Uh, I'm curious. Do you think, do you think it has to take seven generations? uh seven i've heard the seven before and certainly in 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 biblical philosophy and that the number seven is quite uh um powerful or at least it it is in a lot of different things right it shows up a lot um mm-hmm. do you think it's something that can be changed uh i i you know i'm going to use the word faster but i, I you know what i mean I, I i think
1: yeah i think that in some cases there are people that can Manage the trauma, given um, the right support, and I think that support is huge in Indigenous communities. I think that um, grace and opportunity are huge. I think mentorship and friendship and um, all of these things that uh, have worked in my life can definitely help with that um, with that trauma. I I don't know. I know that I have seen you know um I've seen you know trauma um I've seen lateral violence, I've seen lateral kindness um, sometimes indigenous people are the hardest on each other uh, and I think that just comes from being colonized and uh, uh our our indigenous culture is uh very gracious indigenous culture is very kind. Um, but uh, we've also learned a lot from our colonizers as well and and uh, sometimes um, we haven't learned the right the right behaviors and we still exhibit that trauma in ways that I don't think we're always um, even aware of. So uh, we try to elevate each other as opposed to um, you know denigrate but uh, you know the the more successful you are, you know haters will always come out in some way, shape or form. And, uh, I think you have to be prepared for that as well.
0: When you, you said something early on and I, I am, I, am going to butcher this. So I apologize, but something about living out of the two eyes, uh, one as through your culture and then one as through, um, I don't know, I don't know the word you use now, so I'm, I i can not mm-hmm. but, but, um, to me, like I don't know. It's it's such a difficult, uh, difficult, uh, difficult thing. We live in such interesting times, and by interesting, I mean like really. (sighs) Some days I wake up and I'm like, oh man, like what's going to be next? You you know, you kind of. But uh, to me, I'm like, how do you build strong communities? The the community I live in is ridiculously diverse, and I assume Jasper's no different. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have all these different backgrounds with things that. are very meaningful to them, but at the core of uh, most of us, I think, is like, you know, good intentions. And I think if you embrace maybe a little more humility and things like that, that maybe we could pull our, our uh, communities tighter. But you know, you you mentioned one rat study. I'll I'll, I'll give you another one. the 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 one that I, I've the one that I've really stared at for a long time is. With rats, you can't addict them to hard drugs when they're socialized, meaning they have other rats. They won't touch it. We're talking, I'm, I'm going to talk specifically cocaine. But when you lock them up for an extended period of time, they will become addicted to cocaine. And I go, like, our, our all of our communities just went through something that, you know, um, well, has just hit every community. And so you go, now more than ever, we have to find a way to, uh, I don't know, speak kindly to one another and, and understand that what we all just went through, there was something like, but I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know if that word vomit just made any sense to you, Matricia.
1: No, I, I, I've, I've looked at that rat study too, because basically he created a rat paradise and then, and then re- like, and then they were. Wo- <clears throat> and then the, the rats that didn't have rat paradise you know um chose to to be addicted and so we just we you know that really happened just now and so addictions have gone through the roof um there's a state of emergency in alberta for opioid addictions right now so um there's no doubt that that coming off the cusp of covid totally makes sense because the one thing that um if we have to decolonize ourselves the one thing that um, we have to do is we have to create relationship, and so COVID was the absence of relationship, right? We were told to um, uh, not have a relationship. We were told to, you know, be by ourselves or you know just have a few um, uh, cohorts, <clears throat> and that's why that's why Zoom. That's why what happened, and it was very um, within the indigenous community. And one of the things actually I loved about it was after about a year of COVID, they realized that a lot of the elders were suffering um, loneliness and, uh, and that the addiction rate were going higher. And it was because there was lack of relationship. And so they started doing, um, they actually started getting the elders and they started, you know, doing a lot of Zoom presentations. So I was able to go all over Turtle Island and take in all of these cultural teachings that I never would have had access to um, being in this remote community because all of the communities at the same time sort of realized what was happening and, and started changing within the community with that. Now that's a larger Indigenous community, but even within Jasper, you know, we um, we all sort of cohorted with about eight people and we stuck with those eight people, but sometimes they would intersect with other bubbles, but we decided to really create a community. It might have been on the ski hill. It might have been walking, you know, across the street from each other. It it might have been in uh, on Zoom. But, uh, you know, we had, like, community areas where there was uh, soup available. We had places that, you know, would deliver food. Coco's here in town. I mean, you could just phone them up and say, I don't have access to a meal. They would deliver a meal to you. So there were some really great things that happened within our community in the way that Jasper has always taken care of each other. And so we're really lucky in that way that Jasper pulls together. Um. So I never felt like I had lack of community, but I could understand a lot of people feeling isolated during COVID and perhaps turning to addiction in order to soften that blow. Um, and uh, and sort of like, and and I that that's totally understandable to me. I, I think a lot of people did pick up with uh, behaviors that they normally wouldn't have picked up with because they were on their own, you know, sort of even drinking on your own became normalized, which, you know, is something that we tend to do socially. So yeah, there's, yeah. Um.
0: When, when you met with, you, you mentioned the elders and uh, them doing um, different uh, zoom calls and, and, and things like that, To uh, you know, kind of restore a bit of a connection as we both know sitting and doing this as a joke before we started, you know, is one thing being in person and uh, getting to see body language and feeling that, you know, uh, energy, the emotion uh, is, I don't even have a number for it folks a thousand times better but I mean this is this is about as close as you can get when when we're you know on opposite sides of the province what are some of the things you learned out of the elders uh cuz uh, like uh, there's nothing more fascinating to me than to getting to sit with somebody who is you know 30 40 years maybe 50 years uh, older than me uh that still has their mind can still share stories can talk about things of days gone past lessons learned, hardships, everything. Uh, and I assume from a cultural standpoint, they have stories that just must, uh, um, I don't know, blow you away. Uh, and I'm curious, like what, what did you learn getting to sit and hear from these different men and women?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I jumped onto the Ontario Ashinaabe, uh, education, um, circle and they had different, um, Uh, Facilitator. So I learned about the uh, seven stars. Um, Wilfred Buck did a um, one on uh, dark sky teachings. Ruben Quinn, I did his very last um, star chart and uh, Cree class. And then I also took a a course to the PANFW on the West Coast on uh, on my um, beginning Cree. And then uh, Mackenzie and I jumped on Zoom and we did a a Saturday morning uh, drum show. But yeah, you're right. Like, I I would have never gotten access to these kind of teachings, um, even in person, because I'm so busy during the summer, I just wouldn't have been able to make, you know, those kind of trips, like to Ontario, or to Manitoba, or to the West Coast. And so I was able to receive all of those teachings, they always verified that you're Indigenous, you had to put like your, your name and where you you know like where you hailed from and um, you know your interest in the group. but uh, I also took my indigenous herbalism. So I took my um, my herbalism 101 through Wildrose College um, and right now I'm taking my uh, T sommelier and that's all through uh, online uh, virtual work as well. So I found it um, you know I found that the lifelong learning part of things kept my um, kept me busy. And that was um, a nice way of passing the time for me because I am so social. And of course, you know, COVID, we just sort of traded around doing different um, uh, meals and making sure that, you know, we were getting out onto the ski hill and seeing people that way. But yeah, I found that um, COVID was really difficult for me. I'm an an extreme extrovert, so not having access to my friend group or um, access, especially because I'm a musician. Um, We actually did a lot of porch concerts here in Jasper. So we would uh, get outside and have a, um, you know, we would have a Saturday where there'd be six musicians um, on, on each hour. And so I would have groups of people, you know, in their little pods outside of my condo who would come and watch my concert uh, via porch. So Jasper got really creative as a community um, to allow um gatherings in a way that were still um, socially distant and uh, felt safe to people to attend. And so um, that that was a lot of the things that we did. But yeah, I, I, I appreciated the Zoom and uh, it, a lot of the um, groups that I still stay in contact with are from other parts of the country and I still um able to log on and, and get information. So it really broadened my horizons and my knowledge in that way.
0: You know, you, you've almost brought me back full circle to the um, music and drumming and I'd, I'd written down... Um, when you first were talking about it, uh, uh being w- your heartbeat and, uh, kind of where your feet are, is it a form of, uh, I, maybe this is the wrong way to look at it, but I, I, w- I was like, is it a form of meditation, uh, the drumming and a constant rhythm and, and trying to, uh, get rid of your brain going from everywhere else, but where you actually are?
1: Yeah, it totally does center you. It is like an act of meditation. Um, I'm a certified meditation practitioner through Deepak Chopra and, uh, I find that it's very difficult for me to meditate because, um, my brain, uh, really never stops working. Um, so an act of meditation like drumming allows, allows me to center myself because it's, it's like a, an active meditation. I think that's one of the reasons why I used to run as well, because uh, running allowed my thoughts to eventually, you know, slide to the background and I was just able to be in my body, um, physically active, but um drumming is very similar the same way drumming in our cultures is considered sacred too so we believe that when we're drumming we're opening a portal to the creator and it makes him sit up and take notice of what it is that we're doing and he sends his you know his gratitude down to us for you know practicing our culture and remembering um our gifts and so it's always like if any one of us uh, we have about six Indigenous people here in Jasper if any one of us is struggling at the time we just get together and drum and that just really seems to alleviate our stress or bring our anxiety down or lift us out of a depression it just it really is a a grateful act Um, and that really was not what I thought that drumming would do (laughs) You know, I was so, um, egotistical when I started drumming, I thought, oh, I'm going to share my voice with the world. And, uh, it was the world that shared with me. And, uh, yeah, I'm just so
0: Could, could you, could you, um, <laughs> expand on that thought just, just a little bit? You know, I, I think so many of us at a young age, uh, think we, we, we know it, we got it and, you know, and you, <laughs> that's an interesting thought. And I, I, I would love for you to share a little more on you know, what you thought drumming was going to be. And then it kind of like sideswiped me like, Oh, Oh, yeah. okay.
1: Well, I had to learn a lot of humility. Uh, I had to learn a lot of grace. I still have people who constantly correct me on uh different protocol. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't really like to be told what to do as much as the next person or get uh, negative feedback. So I had to learn how to accept that in a way, uh, in the way that it was intended. It was intended to help me and lift me up as opposed to bring me down. And, uh, um, but I think that, I thought that um, drumming would sort of set me apart, Um, but what it did was it opened up a community of like-minded individuals. And there's a joyousness that I get in drumming with my drum sisters that I don't know if I've ever received in any other way. And, uh, you know, I've, I I think one of the most grateful things that I've ever done is raise a family. Um, And so then being able to drum with my daughter, as a duo for a while there was uh, incredibly gratifying. And I think that um, out of all the people that I've ever drummed with, she's still my favorite drum sister to drum with um and it's nice to be able to see her in that light i mean she started as a teenager with a little girl voice and a little tiny drum and now she has a big drum and a big voice and it's even bigger than mine and uh it's it's been uh gratifying to watch that transition um from somebody who was little to somebody who can stand on her own two feet and uh, command a crowd and i think drumming we often get emotional responses when we're drumming i think that when you open your heart up to people, and they see your true authentic self. Um, you know, I think that we have lots of layers of uh, of the way that we present ourselves, and drumming seems to strip all of that away. It seems to create a, a portal right to our heart. And I mean, I think as a musician, we all know that it's a universal language. So when we're truly authentically singing with our authentic voice and using our cultural instrument, I think it just adds another um, layer to that. Uh, to
0: that message yeah I, once upon a time we were talking about and I brought this up lots on the podcast it seems but how you bring people together and uh you know I always quote Daryl Sutter you know he, he uh coach of the Calgary Flames he he talked about uh um uh church music sports we added in comedy um because uh it just seems to bring people to the same you know uh um spot right it kind of fades away everything else and music certainly does that i mean like i, I um, in the middle of covid when we had an outdoor uh concert if you will and I, I it was just an open mic at the the local brewery uh i remember just everybody could kind of was like couldn't stop smiling because they just hadn't heard i forgot what live music sounded like isn't that a wild thing to say out loud right now um and uh it was beautiful um I'm I'm curious, you know, I, I don't know, you. I'm curious your thoughts on this, on this thought, because uh, when you talk about, you know, your culture and, you know, basically the support of having drum sisters and, and when somebody's feeling down, you come together and you drum and it, it, it kind of like is a support to help them through different stages and, and everything else. I think that thought right there is what a lot of people need is a support group around them that uh, can help them out and care for them in their time of need. Uh, I've certainly been a benefit, a benefactor of having people around me that uh, want the best for me. Um, But each culture is going to have their different way that that works for them. And actually, when I, when I think back to what you said early on about, uh, you know, generational trauma and infecting the DNA, if you've been raised, um, in your culture, chances are that's exactly what you need. But if you've been raised maybe as, uh, it doesn't matter, uh, Christian or Islam or uh, whatever it is, if that's been your history for a thousand years, longer, whatever the date we want to put on it, that's probably more of what you need. Or am I wrong in thinking that?
1: No, I, no, I think you are right. I think that lots of cultures have a way of gathering, you know, traditionally. Um, and we powwow. Um, but, uh, indigenous culture is always around music and food and, um, and gathering and family. And a lot of that was, uh, destroyed with this, you know, residential school and 60s scoop. And so that refractured society, you know, is, is putting the pieces together. Um, but I mean, even, um, I read about a, a group in, um, In Ghana and all of the women would go to the river every morning and for three hours they would do all of the washing you know and that was when they would sing that's when they would talk that's what and then uh, eventually they stopped doing that because everybody got their own um, washing machines in their homes and uh, when somebody went back um, a year later nobody was using the washing machines anymore they had all started gathering back at the river to start washing again because they were all suffering from loneliness. They weren't singing their songs anymore. They weren't gathering, and and it was like a go- not a gossip group, but that's where they were getting their information. That's where they were binding. That's where they were getting their joyousness. That's their community. That was their community. Yeah. And so this independent living, where they were all just doing their washing at home, had really taken had really fractured that community sense of of. of and I I think about that lots with how sort of indigenous ways of being and knowing. And we even Friday nights. Um, we have a local jam that happens every Friday night at the Legion. And it's when all the mu- musicians get together. And that was something I really missed during COVID. Like, it just was, you know, this absence of being, you know, just always knowing, you know, on Friday night, there was that music that was happening there and getting together with all the other musicians and and having that place on stage to, you know... Um, uh, you know, just get up and sing. But even for myself, I, I would rarely take part in the open mic, but I was almost always there listening and supporting the other musicians. And uh, that was really something that um, that I missed. I missed watching the other musicians because that gave me a lot of, you know, watching other musicians, of course, that's uh, what motivates me to uh, also continue performing and writing my own songs. So, yeah, that was a huge community that, uh, that I missed.
0: Yeah, it's... a. You know, you think of the, the world we live in here in Western culture, probably Europe, probably a bunch of different other countries, but certainly, um, the go, 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 go mentality. And what you don't have your, your story about, uh, I think you said Ghana. I've heard a similar one about a water well where they go to, um, I think it was Paul Brandt actually, who told the story of, uh, um, getting water from the river. And it was like a, I don't know, a two mile walk. And then they had to walk. And so what they did was they built them a well. That way it's right in town. And, you know, Western thought process is now you don't have to walk so far. And every time they came back, the well was destroyed and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So they eventually sent a guy to watch it. And in the middle of the night, somebody went and destroyed the, the well and they, they, they questioned him on him. And what they found out was, uh, um, uh, I think in this particular story, folks was that essentially, um, the women went and got the water, got them out of the house away from some of the abuse that they were seeing if they stayed in the house all the time. And so they actually enjoyed the commute. They got to be around other women and they, st- and they had the community that essentially, was it hard? Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but they enjoyed the, the, the difficulty of being surrounded by other um women of their culture. And here we all have, you know, like the stories of, uh, uh, of my ancestors coming over and and forming these little tiny farming communities in the worst weather circumstances ever, um, but they had community. That's, it's one thing that was very um, prevalent in their stories is that they had community. And everybody looked out for one another. And one of the things uh, you know that I think we're kind of brushing on here is the fact that we all got all these great technologies that allow us to do everything, except none of us have that same community and you go how do you get back to that isn't that an interesting thought uh, like you know every pro- with all this progress you've lost one of the key parts of um a lot of different cultures because it w- doesn't matter where you came from there was a part of your culture you've absolutely lost in the in the process of of, of progress over the last i don't i don't know what it is is it the last 100 years is it the last 200 years you kind of get the point
1: yeah, well, we actually deal with that a lot, even in our community, um, especially with retirees. So a lot of people chose to retire during COVID um, because they weren't working anyway uh, and took early retirement. But unfortunately, what that's done is that's uh, uh, put People who are still have a lot to give their community, um, who now are sitting at home and who are lonely, depressed, and not feeling like they're. Um, so there's been a lot of like, uh, I was reading a report about a, an individual, his entire um, job is unretiring people and uh using um elements to yeah i know to like reconnect them back and doing things that they love to do uh, but also get paid for in a way that is gratifying and something that they can you know kind of do but a lot of people retire want to retire early at 55 or 60 and they're living till 90 so that still gives them 30 years to like be productive in their communities and uh and we've really discounted that that senior as well. And so in in indigenous culture, um, elders are revered. And so, you know, they're built, they have a community that's built around them. You know, we love to listen to their stories and we make sure that, you know, they're not left alone and that they're cared and fed for. But I don't see that in like a traditional society here uh, as much uh, our seniors are often, you know, by themselves and sort of left alone.
0: Yeah, and and we hit this point and I don't know what age that is because um, there comes a point where uh, we discount what they have to say, and and you don't hear from them much anymore. And that might be getting be being put in um, uh, a retirement facility or something like that. I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it happens, but I do know this: if you stop using your mind, you may lose it. Like I mean, you have to be active. Your body doesn't just get to you know like you have to continually do things. And if when you stop, bad things are going to come not just depression but like health issues a whole bunch of different things the meaning of life isn't found by putting your feet up and doing nothing that's that's i think jordan peterson once said that's a holiday yeah. a holiday is going to to, to the the wherever the, the ocean or the river or whatever you know um mm-hmm. and, and drinking daiquiris or whatever what have you but like you know you need a plan um because if you just sit around and don't do anything i mean hello, that was COVID. We sat and watched Netflix. You can only watch Netflix for so long before you're like, okay, I need some human interaction. I need to I need to talk with some people. I need to get out and do some things in my community. Otherwise, you know, what's the next alternative? And a lot of people turned, like we talked about early on, to drugs and, and different things like that.
1: Well, and I think that um, we're actually doing a disservice to our senior community when we discount what they have to offer. And I think it's been probably even bigger in the fact that, um, you know, technology has increased at such a rate that if you're not keeping up with it, then you're sort of out of the loop. And that happens to a lot of uh, seniors. They they just, they're not able to keep up with the... Um, With the way that technology is and so they're kind of excluded you know and how have we been getting all of our information over covid well we've been getting it online or through the internet which a lot of seniors don't have access to and they're not on facebook and so then how do they um you know how are they yeah so a lot of the seniors that you know we get to see on are facilitated with you know other um individuals so i i you know there is definitely a point here where um I go in and uh, once a week and I do drumming at the seniors uh, center here in Jasper. And last time I took in like my feathers and my drums and my rattles and I dressed them all up. But like, as soon as I put a drum in their hands, their face just lights up and they just start drumming. And it's always amazing. Like, um, how connected they are to with what's happening, even they, even though they don't appear to, but music seems to have this effect on people and, uh, I think for a lot of these uh, older individuals, they've never held on to an indigenous drum and been able to uh, drum it. And, and uh, it's a sort of a lovely interaction, but it's amazing like how alive they become in that particular moment.
0: Yeah. It's um, it's, it sounds like really, I don't know what the word is, but like to actually uh, treat them like a human being and care, you know, is it, we we've got all these facilities and I'm not against like I, sound like I'm against them or something, but just the, the idea that you can just, lo- uh, you know, stick them in a facility and, and, and then you just move on with life and they're fine. Like, it's like, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. Like, uh, human interaction is like really, 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 really beneficial. I can stick my hand up and say, I'm the first to attest to that because, uh you know i'm an extrovert is, just like you matricia and uh before covid i was doing every single interview in person it was one yeah. of my one of the things i wanted to do and i am not uh you know one of the benefits of of covid is it's opened my eyes to i can interview anyone on this planet if i put enough energy into it and find a way to to have all these different interactions but it still doesn't top sitting in front of somebody and having a conversation it's, it's just it's not the same um but as far as you know th- A lot of different segments of the population yeah we got to find a way to uh i don't know find that level of care again i i I don't know where we lost it and i don't know exactly how to find it again other than uh it starts with conversation and certainly opening up some ideas and hearing some different thoughts
1: oh for sure and i think it's one that we have to continue i mean we saw what happened during covid with some of the senior centers and uh, the lack of care especially in uh, quebec where there was, you know, um, seniors dying at an incredible rate, um, you know, the, the break, breaks of COVID, and it just sort of really highlighted, you know, that end of care that we provide to our most vulnerable population. And maybe because I'm starting to like dive into that area, I notice when I'm w- uh, with the other se- with seniors, like <laughs> I'm not that far removed. <laughs> <laughs> from the age element and so uh it kind of makes me think geez where am I going to be in 10-15 years you know like um am I going to be able to still be independent you know and uh I, and I definitely think of those questions now like the closer that I get to that uh sort of stage and um and I wonder how you know my community will be able to support me in that endeavor as well so Jasper seems to be pretty special that way and uh but you know we it's not a retirement community. It's an active community. So it's a difficult one to retire into. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that, you, you know, as two independent people here, I think talking, um, you, you make a good point. I i don't know how, fr- I, I'm frustrated when I, like, I I, I, I banged up my knee. This is probably, I don't know, a year ago now. And I had a real hard time walking and I'm a guy who still likes to play hockey and be active. And, and then you, then you bugger up your knee and all of a sudden you lose all the things that you enjoy doing. I'm going to, you know, you wonder how many, uh, elderly folks you run into that are grumpy and they're grumpy because they've lost their independence. And I actually really, you know, admired my grandmother who up until she passed was still driving, was still dealing with the, the, uh, the flowers and everything at, at her facility. Right. Like mm-hmm. she never lost her independence. And, uh, that's a beautiful thought actually, maybe as, as you, a person gets older to never lose your independence. Cause I can imagine having to rely on every, it doesn't mean you don't want community around you it's just like when you've been independent for so long to lose that i don't know that that'd be a tough thing as well
1: yeah Yeah, um, I, I, you know, that's a two folded thing, because I did notice some seniors that uh, recently um, made that transition into home, and they're very, very happy. They have their sort of independent living as well. But um, I think they were very happy to sort of give up the responsibility of caring for a home and uh, Mm. providing their own groceries. And, uh, you know, just it was, I think it was uh, a grateful to be able to, like, you know, have a meal provided and, and not have to worry about but still, you know, if they wanted to have their soup in their own kitchen, they could. So there's definitely you know um different ways of retiring i just hope that everybody can afford to retire in in a dignified way
0: yeah that's a the, yes uh agreed well i've uh i appreciate you giving me some time this morning i i want to do the 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 crude master final question and then I'll, I'll uh uh leave you be but either way i've enjoyed uh uh you coming on and, and sharing a bit of uh your story with us this morning um the crude, final, crude master final question is uh if you're going to stand behind a cause, then stand behind it absolutely. What's one thing Matricia stands behind?
1: Oh, definitely I stand behind uh, women and empowerment and uh independent uh um entrepreneurship. I've found a lot of um space and uh a success in being an indigenous uh, uh woman entrepreneur and i've seen the same space created by other indigenous women um that have been able to um, provide for themselves provide for their families and uh and do what uh, they love to do and also um, be supported by the community so if that's the cause i have to pick then on the fly that's uh that's the one i'm going to go with
0: well thanks again matricia i appreciate you sitting down with me this morning and uh uh, all the best to you here as, as we, you know, move through 2023 and, and uh, hopefully for Jasper and for Canada's sake, uh, tourism continues to pick up and, and, uh, um, you guys, uh, you know, uh, start to see, uh, you know, I don't know the benefits of, uh, more people coming to explore the area and, and nature and everything else.
1: Yeah, for sure, Sean. So thank you so much for, uh, um, giving me a place and a space to chat. And, uh, next time you're out in Jasper, make sure you hook up. Will do. Okay, sounds good.